I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94. This is Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good afternoon. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. And I am super pleased to be able to introduce someone that you probably know, you may have even voted for, Senator Tammy Duckworth is with us today joining us, I believe, from D.C., am I correct? Yes, you are. I hope they voted for me. I hope they did, too. I, in fact, I did, and I, I know that Jeremy did. I can't speak for Michael. So I did. Yes. There we go. Uh, Tammy has a new book out. It's called Every Day is a Gift. It is out from Hot Chats Imprint 12. Tammy, thanks so much for spending time to talk with us today. I want to jump right in. One of the things, uh, there's two things that struck me, first of all, about reading your book. The first thing is that you spent your life serving our country in the military, and I could not believe that, that you did that as a child who suffered gunfire in Phnom Penh in 1975 when you were trying to leave that country. Had I been you, I would have stayed as far away from weaponry <laughs> as absolutely possible. But getting to that, I also want to say one thing I did not know about you, and, and I think this is so apt to talk about right now, you grew up as a member of the working poor, and you talk very eloquently in your book about the travails that you and your family suffered. Your mother had to stay in another country. Your father was out of work very often. You spent a great deal of time hustling, as you put it, in Hawaii. <laughs> well, you... I did hustle. You did. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I you, yeah. Tourists. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. great. My, 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 my communications director said when he when I let him read the draft, he, yeah, we might want to change some of this for money playing beach volleyball. I'm like, yeah, but that's me. That happened. He's like, I know, but I'm like, no, no, people will like it. It's okay. That was a long time. I don't hustle people for money playing beach volleyball anymore it's all right I, that was we all thought that was amazing and we're thankful that you had that in the book but one of the things that i brought that up was because you were one of the few people that i can think of who are serving in congress who actually knows what us poor slobs are going through we're we're working yeah. stiffs this is a blue collar show and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how that influenced your service in washington yeah at one point when my dad lost his job in his 50s uh he couldn't find another job for almost five years. And, um, you know, at 16, I became the only person in my family who could have a job, uh, who could find a job. And I worked for minimum wage. It was like $3 and 40 cents an hour. And I was grateful for that minimum wage because they couldn't underpay me because I was a kid. They had to pay me. It was the law. Uh, and then, you know, and I did everything I could. I, I, I dug through garbage uh, to turn, you know, return cans and bottles. I, um, I, I talked in a book about hustling tourists. I would play beach volleyball and, and pretend that I couldn't play. And, you know, uh, uh, me and <laughs> me and a buddy would, we would, we would win these games and, and, and uh, you know, five bucks here, five bucks there. And to this day, do not get between me and money on the ground. Even if it's a penny, <laughs> I will roll over you and with my wheelchair. I am not embarrassed. I am not shy. Uh, cause at one point in my life, you know, we could find a dollar, it meant that my brother and I could eat school lunch and school breakfast because it was 25 cents a piece. Um, and, and yeah, I know, I know what, what hard, I know how hard people work. And this whole argument that the working poor are just not working hard enough is baloney because I never worked harder in my life, whether it was as a soldier or as a Senator than I was, than I ever did when I was 16 trying to put together a buck a day so that my brother and I could eat the next day. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, you talk about in your book that the Duckworths were a military family. And my immediate family, my stepbrother served, my sister served, my brother-in-law served, my nephew served, and I served. And, you know, my family had eight kids total. 
between my mom and my stepdad, one of the options was you either went to college, got a job, or you went in the military. And I think that um, your experience in bringing that in, because, I mean, how many people in our government have served? It's very small, just like in our general population. And I think that's great because you bring another aspect to the table that many people have no idea what it's like. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead, Senator. No, no, I think, I think, you know, it was more true before that more people served uh, across our country. And, and part of it had to do with the ending of the draft. Um, I support the end of the draft. I don't think there should be a draft, but it did make the experience of military service one that became much more segregated. Yeah, we were, we were actually talking about uh, this before the show, how in some other countries services required, like Israel, the, the guys were saying Germany, and how it probably creates a lot different culture uh, um, just among um, the greater population because I haven't served. My, my grandfathers both served in World War II, and I have uh, several friends who, who, are in, who have served in the military. By the way, Corporal Harris, airborne sapper, served in Iraq when you did. He says thank you and uh, hello. He also mastered in poli-sci at NIU. Sorry, just had to squeeze that in there. That's uh, awesome. You got to be you got to be careful with those sappers. You know what they are, right? They're they're grunts with explosives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he blows stuff up. Not, not only are they grunts, not only are they infantry. They give them extra explosives, man. But he's, those guys are trouble. <laughs> he's recently gone to the uh, the VA to help him uh, start a business. And in, in your book, you talked about how your father was um, was hesitant and, and ended up not accepting some of the benefits from the VA yeah. because he thought maybe he was taking away from other people. Can you talk about how the, those benefits work and how that's just not the case? Yeah, so veterans think oftentimes that, you know, take care of my buddy. I, you know, take care of my buddy first. That's what you do in the military. You look, at, you look out for each other, right? Um, when I was wounded, my buddies were saying, hey, take care of Tammy first. She's more badly wounded than I, than I am. And I was saying, take care of my guys first, you know, uh, take care of them first. I'm okay. And, and that's, just the, that's just the way you are. You watch out for one another, for your brothers and your sisters to your left and your right. Um, that, does not, that is not the case in the VA, but, they, but veterans bring that with them. So they think that if they get to the VA and they go to VA for healthcare, it means that some other veteran is being turned down. So that if they are not sick or if they have some sort of form of health care already, they say they don't go to VA and they don't get registered. Um, this, in fact, hurts veterans because uh, the VA decides whether or not they build a new hospital or provide more money for veterans based on how many veterans are in a particular area. So in Illinois, the VA thinks that, that there are 800,000 veterans in Illinois because that's how many have registered with the VA, but I know that there's at least 1.2 million veterans, 400,000 more than the VA thinks, because Jesse White tells me he's got 1.2 million veterans who have applied for veterans license plates. Hmm. And so there's, there's 400,000 more people who should be getting benefits, and we should at least have three more VA hospitals in Illinois I mean, than there are. That, I mean, I, why is that, though? And that was something that I, I focused on in your book, too. Why is there this reluctance and this feeling that if you take something that, you know, your guy's not going to get it. I mean, I know that you have done a lot of work on making sure the VA is getting whatever it needs and whatever it can. And again, thank you for that, because especially during these pandemic times, that's been huge. But why does this mentality still persist? Because in the military, you're taught to, when I say selfless, I mean that you're taught to put the greater good over your own. And you know, it's, it's something as simple as when you stand in the chow line, right? When it's time for chow and you stand in the chow line and there's a, there's a finite amount of chow. Uh, as an officer, I went last. Like my men ate first and then I ate. 
uh, uh, that's just what you do because you don't want to run out of food and you have already eaten when your buddy hasn't. So you always make sure that you take care of your people. Uh, you take care of your subordinates and you take care of your buddies first before you take care of yourself. That's just the way you are. You, you, you watch out for one another. Um, and, and so, you know, you share everything. And so, you know, veterans take this mentality with them and they think that, okay, I, I should be getting something that I don't really need um, because maybe my buddy needs it. Um, and you just carry that over, but that's not how the VA works. The VA actually provides there. President Obama it was under president Obama that we passed the law that has mandatory for the funding for the VA's healthcare. So whatever they that. need, they get. Yeah. And there's also that suck it up mentality and you know, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with it. And obviously you're a good officer. You know, I was in the artillery and we had some good ones and bad ones, but Senator Duckworth, you know, we read your book and can we talk about how you went from, um, an, you know, an immigrant into Hawaii to the military, to the Senate? I know that's a big question, but could, you know, <laughs> can you sum that up for us? Um, I think you're, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I, I've been a fan since the beginning. Um, uh, as a fellow veteran, I know that you're looking out for us, but you're also looking out for the people of Illinois. And I just wanted to throw this in um, before we go. I'm, I'm proud to have you on the show, and I have never been so excited in my life to, have, to speak to someone as has been you. So just wanted to let you know that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Um, be, be honest. It's because of the army jokes I told in the book, isn't it? That's true. It <laughs> is. <good> <laughs> it is. Well, I'm not an immigrant. Let me start off by saying I'm not an immigrant. I'm a native-born American because my dad's American. But I grew up overseas. That's post right. Vietnam. I'm sorry. I and, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's a common. It's a common uh, misperception. Uh, I grew up overseas because my dad, after his military service, chose to work for the United Nations refugee programs and development programs in Southeast Asia. So he was a guy who went overseas and never came home. Uh, we, we have these guys, they, they go to Germany and they, you know, they stay in Germany or they go to Japan, they stay in Japan. And he was one of these guys, he just stayed in Southeast Asia and he raised us there. Um, and so I got to see America from the perspective of people overseas. And it was a very idealized perspective what America was like. And, and you know, I just knew I had all these privileges because I was an American. You know, um, and, and that my life was better because as an American and my dad always said, you'd better serve, you know, you're going to serve in some way. He never thought I would serve in uniform. He thought, you know, I always thought I would serve in the Foreign Service or the Peace Corps or something. But um, we moved to the States when my dad lost his job overseas. By this point, he was working for a large corporation. They sold the business. The new owners didn't want him. And he couldn't find another job for five years. And so we landed in Hawaii. Um, not because we wanted to go to paradise, but because it was the cheapest place we could get to from Thailand. And we only had enough money to buy three plane tickets. Um, and my mom couldn't even come with us because my mom, even though she was a wife of an American and a mother to two Americans, didn't have a green card and didn't have a visa. Um, and so we landed in Hawaii where um, we were stuck and we were the working poor. I mean, you know, we, we, I, I worked in Waikiki handing out flyers to tourists to this day. If I go anywhere where it's going to be handing out flyers, I hand out flyers. And my job is to try to figure out whether I should hand out a booze, cru booze cruise flyer or a romantic dinner cruise flyer based on the, guy, the person and how they were walking towards me. Uh, you know, and, and I got like, I don't know, a, a dime for every one of those flyers that got turned in in addition to my, uh, my minimum wage salary. Um, and then when I graduated University of Hawaii, I only went to one school because that's all I could afford. Um, and, and then I moved to D.C. because I wanted to join the Foreign Service. I was getting my master's when I was told I should go to NIU, Northern Illinois University, to go get my Ph.D. Didn't want to do it. 
this is crazy. It's cold there. Why would I go? (laughs) And then I got in my little yellow Dodge Charger and I drove, you know, 13 hours and I drove through the cornfields of Illinois and I just like, I was home. I can't tell you why. Having lived this completely vagabond life from country to country, living out of the suitcase at one point, everything I owned was in two suitcases for years. I drove through the Midwest and through the cornfields and the prairie and I got to DeKalb and I was like, it's like a weight lifted off of me. Like, this is, this is where I belong. And I've been there ever since. It's been 30 years. And, and, and I didn't know I was mid, a Midwesterner growing up until I got to Illinois. We've got to move out of the hotel, my dad said. To where, I asked, fear and frustration rising in my chest. We couldn't just leave without any place to go. Did he think the three of us could just trundle off to sleep in a park somewhere? Dad had no answer. So he did the only thing he could think of. He called the local American Legion. Founded in 1919, the American Legion is a membership organization for U.S. military veterans, and one of its tenets is a devotion to mutual helpfulness. Dad obviously hoped that we might be the recipients of some of that helpfulness. The person who answered Dad's call listened as he explained our situation, then told him to get pencil and paper. Write this down, he said, and rattled off a string of digits. It's the phone number of a woman in the American Legion Auxiliary. She can help you. Good luck. Dad dialed the number, and the woman who picked up gave him an address and told him to come right over. Too broke to take a cab, we rode the bus for what felt like an eternity. It was dark by the time we got off at a stop, and Dad, Tom, and I walked the rest of the way to the woman's house. When the door swung open, my brother and I shuffled in, my dad close behind. There weren't enough seats in the living room for all of us, so I plopped down on the floor beside the woman's lazy boy chair. I heard it creak as she leaned down and asked me if I could guess how old she was. I shook my head. I'm 90 years old. How do you like that? She asked. My teenage brain couldn't take this in, so when I was born 16 years earlier, this woman was already ancient at 74. There have been a couple times in my life when I felt unable to comprehend the reality I was facing. Once with this old woman, another much later, when I was serving in Iraq and first stepped out into the 125 degree heat of Baghdad. It's a confusing sensation being unable to make your brain understand what your body is feeling. That day in Hawaii, I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that my dad was telling this very old stranger that we were broke, had no place to live, and were on the brink of homelessness. The woman, I truly wish I could remember her name, began ticking off tasks for my dad. You need to go sign up for food stamps, she said, and you need to get the kids enrolled in school. They have subsidized lunch programs, so that will help. When dad told her we had been living in a hotel, she said, no, no, you need to find yourselves an apartment. But of course, we had no cash to pay the first month's rent and the deposits, so what landlord would ever agree to rent to us? In one sickening instant, I understood how ordinary people become homeless. If you have no money, you can't get an apartment. If you don't have an apartment, you can't get a job. You fall into a cycle that, once it starts, is nearly impossible to climb out of. And I realized with a sudden and frightening clarity that my own family was close to falling in. I felt like throwing up right there on this woman's living room floor. That's the moment when this wonderful woman reached into her purse and pulled out a worn checkbook. As we held our breath, she made out a personal check to Frank Duckworth and then filled in the amount of $500. She carefully tore it out and handed it to my dad. Use this for an apartment, she said. She gave him the name of a complex that might have vacancies and advised him to get a job in a hotel until he could get back on his feet. And first thing tomorrow, she said, you need to go to the Department of Human Services and sign up for food stamps. Then she gave him the address of that office, too. 
My dad nodded, either too stunned or too embarrassed to speak, so I stepped up. Thank you so much, I said to the woman, putting my hands together in a Thai gesture called Y and making a little curtsy like my mom had taught me. Then Tom, Dad, and I headed for the door. Well, we're pleased to have you, and we are speaking right now with <laughs> Senator Tammy Duckworth. She has a brand new book out called Every Day is a Gift. It's out from 12. Uh, I want to move on real quick, Tammy. You know, one of the things that, of course, you are well known for is is your service in Iraq. And, of course, you were grievously injured. Um, you talk very eloquently about that incident in the book. One of the things that, that struck me, probably because I'm a moron, was the fact that you had to order underwear from Victoria's Secret because they didn't give you cotton underwear. For people that are, are not pilots, you, you don't want to wear things that can burn to you and scorch your skin. Um, I have a good friend who's also a pilot, and that was one of the first things she she told me whenever I was visiting her was to bring her new cotton underwear. Um, that, that whole experience... Uh, and in the book, folks, uh, we'll, we'll play some sections of it so you can hear it, but it really is a, a riveting thing. I can't imagine what you went through having your helicopter attacked. You lost limbs in that. You were grievously injured. And the one thing you were worried about, according to everybody that you heard from later, because you, you obviously don't remember a lot of it, mm -hmm. was the thing you were most concerned about was your men. Um, that really struck me as kind of a metaphor for what's going on with your career and maybe why you got into politics. Could we talk a little bit about that shift? Because you mentioned that when you first got into politics, you still had an IV in your arm at Walter Reed. Yeah. Well, the book is called Every Day is a Gift because November 12, 2004, the day that I lost my legs and, and was shot down, was a gift. Uh, and the gift was, the, was, was my life that my buddies gave me. And worrying about my guys, that's just who you are <laughs> as a soldier. You watch out for your buddies. You watch. They did the same thing for me. You know, they didn't leave me behind. I, yeah, I, I was worried about them. And until they intubated me and put me under, I was, I, I was demanding the status of my men. But that's what I was supposed to do. That's who I was in my heart and in my being. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I would have been ashamed if I had not acted in that way. But then again, my buddies did the same thing for me. I mean, they, they, they looked at me and they saw half a body. They said, Tammy, there was nothing from the torso down and we knew you were dead. And they were recovering my corpse for my family to bury. But they were not going to leave me behind. And they, they exposed themselves uh, to uh, more danger. Um, and they got me out of there for a dead body. They didn't run for safety. They didn't run away and leave me there. They went back and they carried me out of that field. And that was a gift. And every day since that day for me has been a gift. And so I try to live up to that. Every day I say a, a prayer of thanks in the morning for this day that I have been given. Um, and I try to live up to, you know, if you read that portion of the book, it's, it is, it is, you know, it's, it's hard to get through. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm tearing up now. Um, but it's, it's also redemption. It's also my North Star, and I try to live up to the sacrifices those guys made for me, um, and I thank them every day. And so what I do now in the Senate and what, I do now, what I've done ever since is, is just to try to repay a gift, I mean, and, and repay a debt I can never repay. I don't ever want my, my buddies from that helicopter to call me up and say, Tammy, you dumb bleepity bleep, you know? <laughs> you, you know, uh, what the F have you been doing? You know, I didn't carry your sorry butt through that field just for you to make this decision. So, you know, they're, they're my gut check. And, and they're not shy about being it either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because I, I think at, at 
as we mentioned earlier, and I'm a combat vet as well, and it's like no one can understand it unless you've done it. And those bonds, I mean, those bonds are just something that, um, you know, it's it's impossible to describe. It's impossible to understand unless you've been there. And I just, again, I I, uh, I wanted to thank you for talking about those things because people need to know, you know, what veterans go through. And we have this, like, rah-rah Hollywood kind of view of veterans in this country, and I'm not talking about you, but in general. Yeah. And and it's a rough mm-hmm. world, and it, it's a tough gig. And uh, I think, Mike, did you have a question? I do. Um, you know, there's just so much to cover, but I, I, I wanted to – move forward a little bit and uh, talk about your experience as a mother. Um, I have a two-year-old. Rosalie turns two Monday, guys. Yeah. Um, Rosalie, is that her name? Rosalie? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a lovely name. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, w- I wanted to see, um, I wanted to hear about your experience uh, as a mother in the Senate and some of the things you've advocated for in the Senate um, and how how it's how the atmosphere has felt as a result of you pushing for things that have never been brought to the floor yeah. before. Yeah, and of course you are the first. Am I, I'm correct? You're the first senator to to, ha- to have a child while serving. Am I correct? Well, I'm the first to give birth. The men have been having babies for years. Some of, them <laughs> some of, some of whom they even claimed as their own. You know, yeah. no, no. The men have been having babies for centuries, literally. Uh, no, I'm the first to give birth. But that only means that what that tells you is that I work in a place full of seventy year olds. Yeah. <laughs> and we need more we need more you know people who are 40 and under and, and by the way i stretched the bounds of science when i had that baby yes, and you, you know as a senator because i was 50 when i had her Amazing. and thank god for northwestern medicine's fertility clinic let me tell you they did miracles um but but yeah you know i um lived experiences better and having diversity of lived experiences in the halls yes. of power matter whether those halls of power are the C-suites of corporations or the halls of the Pentagon or the halls of Congress. It's important to have people in those places that have all of these experiences. It's important to have somebody who was on food stamps like I was. It's important to have somebody, you know, uh, um, who, who is trying desperately to, you know, be a mom. And, and, you know, for all of 2020, I was, you know, trying to be a kindergarten teacher and a Senator. And I was failing miserably at being the kindergarten teacher because I am not trained. Um, and and know what it's like for for all those struggling families out there who had, were trying to you know teach their kids with distance education and hold down a job and pay bills. Um, so all of that really matters, and I think that you know I've been able to pass legislation that I think help working families, but I've also been able to make friends and and bonds that I never expected to. When I tried to bring my daughter on the floor of the yeah. Senate, when I was trying to push for that, I got I got support from unexpected places. I mean, I had the usual opposition, you know, uh, uh, the guys who really would just didn't want to see me breastfeed on the floor as if, as if I want to whip a boob out in front of a bunch of 70 year old guys <laughs> anyway, you know, but You've probably uh, <laughs> seen that by the way, the 70 year old guys have probably seen that. Yeah. But, but they were like worried that I was going to breastfeed on the floor. That was their opposition. And but so then Michael, what if you did? Man? Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm like, it's a baby. It needs to eat. Yeah, but then Mark, you know, but then Marco Rubio, Someone I, you know, if you look politically, I probably have very little in common with, came up to me out of the blue and said, Tammy, I wish I could have brought my children on the floor. I will support you and talk to the caucus. I'm with you 100%. I never even asked him. He just like, he, he yelled my name and I That's turned cool. around and said, oh my God, Marco Rubio is coming towards me. What do I do? <laughs> um, but that, he came to tell me that. And Roy Blunt from Missouri came up to me and said, Tammy, as soon as I am the chairman of the rules committee, 
I will change the rules and get a vote. And he got a unanimous vote and he was good to his word with the exact week he became chairman of the committee. He helped change the rules for me. Um, and so, you know, never, never, you know, never um, turn down help where it comes and, and yeah. you'd be surprised the alliances you can make. Amazing. We're speaking with Senator Tammy Duckworth. Her new book is Every Day is a Gift. It's out from 12. We'll be right back after this short break for station identification. You are listening to I-94 on WLPN Lumpen Radio. This spring on I-94, Jeff Cohen, David Camp, Kevin Matson, Max Basora, Julia Sanchez, Chelsea Summers, Suleiman Adonia, Fariha Lawson, Brontes Purnell, William Hazelgrove, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature show, I-94. Every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. My guys were tired from the long day, but they were up for one last run. As we walked back to our Blackhawk, the sun finally began peeking through the clouds. The air was clean and crisp after the rain, and a bright rainbow arced across the sky. Years later, Kurt would tell me that his thought at this moment was, wow, I can't believe they pay me extra to do this. We were doing something we loved in support of our country on one of the most gorgeous days I had seen in a long time. Given all that, we hardly minded when we arrived in Taji to find that the soldiers had already caught a lift with another helicopter crew. But there was a stray colonel who needed a ride, so he climbed into our sister helicopter. We did a hot refuel, gassing up the bird as the engines were running and the blades turning. Then, shortly after 4 p.m., our two birds took off for ballot. We were a daytime crew and not supposed to be flying after sunset, so we'd have to hustle back. Flying time was expected to be about 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'd be home for the night. As our Blackhawks lifted above the dusty airfield, I could see the muddy Tigris River snaking by just to the east. I maneuvered our helicopter into Chalk 1, the lead position, with CW3 Munch's aircraft flying just to our right as Chalk 2. Though it was possible to fly a straight line between Taji and Balad, the 1st Cavalry Division flight controllers dictated our departure flight path, after which we'd picked up a previously planned route, all designed so that the enemy couldn't predict our movements. We had been in the air for about five minutes when I heard Dan's voice through my headset. Hey, stick pig, he said. How about letting me get some flying time? I smiled. Dan knew I would pilot the bird for as long as he'd let me, and he had let me do it all day. But this was our last 15 minutes, so he wanted to take the stick. You have the flight controls, I told him, initiating the standard three call in response to ensure a smooth handover. I have the flight controls, Dan replied. I confirmed the transfer once more verbally, and with that, Dan was now in control of the Blackhawk. As Dan took over, I made one last call to the flight controllers at Taji. A minute later, a grove of date palms came into view. These groves were like little oases scattered across the desert, their rows of tall palms swaying in the breeze. We were flying about 130 miles per hour now, skimming along 10 feet above treetop level when I heard an unmistakable tap, 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 tap. I knew instantly what it was, small arms fire hitting the metal fuselage right outside my door. I said to Dan, I think we've been hit. My training kicked in, and although our GPS hadn't been working that whole day, we'd been using old-fashioned printouts and paper maps, I instinctively reached forward to push Target Store on the GPS to record the exact location of enemy fire. And then the world exploded. A rocket-propelled grenade blew through the plexiglass, chin bubble at my feet, and detonated in a violent fireball right in my lap. The explosion vaporized my right leg. 
It blew my left leg up into the bottom of the instrument panel, shearing off the shin below the knee and leaving my lower leg hanging by just a thin thread of flesh. And because I had leaned forward, reaching to activate the GPS, the explosion also tore through my right arm, violently shredding it into a bloody mess of muscle, sinew, and bone. In a single shattering instant, my body was blown apart. My skin was burned and riddled with shrapnel and blood began pumping out of my wounds. Welcome back to I-94. We're speaking with Senator Tammy Duckworth. Her new book is Every Day is a Gift. It's out from 12. Um, you know, speaking of your political career, I did want to back up. One of the things you do talk about in the book is going against uh, Peter Roskam in, in 2006, a race you lost. You were trying to get Henry Hyde's old seat. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that race? And the reason I'm, I'm bringing that up, but you don't necessarily talk about it a lot in the book, but it struck me in reading the book, you went against Roskam, you went against Kirk, you went against Walsh, and all of them in their campaigns against you tried to slur you and smear you and use yep. uh, racist language against you. And this is something obviously with the current environment, I think it's no secret to our listeners that there've been at least 3,800 cases of violence against people of, of Asian and Pacific Islander descent. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because this, this struck me as a very chilling thing. It was disturbing, you know, to read this mm-hmm. in your book as a constant, despite someone who had served their country and despite someone, you're a human being. Why, why would you even put up with this? Yeah, well, this is the Asian experience in, in our country. Um, Asian Americans are often treated as the other. Um, you know, people don't question uh, 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 an African-American uh, uh, person, you know, whether or not they're American enough, they're American. Um, uh, but Asian-Americans get asked this all the time. And I've often been asked, where are you from, really? You know, I, I, I've even had people ask me that while I was in uniform with the American flag on my shoulder. Somebody say, well, yeah, yeah, I know. Duckworth, yes, that's your dad's name. And yes, your dad's family has been here since before the revolution. But where are you from? I'm like, if it's my dad's name, then it's my name. So, you know, I'm from here. Um, but that is very, very much a universal experience that Asian Americans have. And, and that's part of this violence that we've seen in 2020. It's really easy to demonize and, 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 and ostracize, ostracize and make Asians the other. Um, and, and that happened in all three of my campaigns where um, some of it was racist talk with Sosa and some of it wasn't. I mean, Peter Roskam, um, actually, in some of those ads, uh, uh, um, negative ads against me, they widened my face, made my skin darker, and turned my eyes into slits. They photoshopped. I mean, this is very early on, 2006. Um, and, and then, you know, um, and Mark Kirk, you know, questioned my ancestry and, and said, oh, yeah, sure, your families came uh, from Thailand to fight for George Washington, so, as if, you know, I couldn't be American enough. So, Unfortunately, it's gotten worse over time, and you're seeing more and more of that, and it didn't help with President Trump and, and what he did to try to divide us, but we have to try to unite, and we have to try to bring each other together, and, and I'm very proud that the bill that we just passed yesterday out of the Senate, uh, the anti-hate crime violence, anti-Asian hate crime um, bill, passed uh, pretty near unanimously. Only one person voted against it, and that was Josh Hawley. But uh, we got 93 other yay votes. So, shocker, um, shocker on Josh Holder. You know? Senator, so I, I, I choose to hope that we can come together. And I want to talk just real quick about your title. Um, this is something uh, that, you know, I'm very I'm, I'm grateful for every day that I have as well. But you, you know, you've been through racism and, and moving around and being in the military and, and being a parent with a bunch of 
in, in the Senate with a bunch of 70 year old guys. And do you, how do you stay grateful every day? I mean, what, what is it? I know you mentioned, you say prayers in the morning, you know, um, but can you just give us, yeah. how do you do it? Tammy, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have a lot of energy. Um, I got to be honest with you. Yeah, it's. Oh, no, I'm, I am constantly exhausted. I'm constantly like, can I take a nap now? And I whine to my staff all the time. You just, you, you can, you can ask them. No, no, literally, the book is called Every Day Is a Gift because I know I should have died, guys. There's no reason that I should be alive to this day. There's no reason that I survived that attack, uh, except for the fact that Sergeant Chris Fierce. You know, they, they threw my body on top of his in, the, in that rescue aircraft, even as he was losing his leg and had a tourniquet on his leg, had the presence of mind to think, oh, my God, there's more and more blood. It's not mine. It's got to be hers. Oh, her heart is still beating. Right. I wouldn't be here if Kurt Hanneman, who, by the way, flies out of Kankakee to this day, um, uh, you know, in the National Guard unit, uh, if Kurt Hanneman, you know, with a bullet in him bleeding, going to shock, didn't stumble towards the bad guys in their direction so that he could stand the perimeter so I could be rescued. I wouldn't be here if, uh, uh, you know, um, Dan Milberg hadn't landed the aircraft and then decided he was going to come back and carry me out, you know. And so for me, every single day is a gift. I, I have, it, is, it is a gift that I got that many Americans don't get in terms of a wake-up call. And, and for me, I just remember that every single day. I'm just so grateful and I look and I see my girls and they're beautiful and, and crazy and, and drive me nuts and, yeah, and make yeah. me exhausted. Um, but I wouldn't have them if I hadn't had that day. And, and so it really comes in part from the Vietnam veterans who taught us the gift of the alive day. You could take that day and go home. And every day on the anniversary of my shoot down, I could sit on a couch and be miserable about having lost my legs. Um, or I can make it a second birthday and celebrate that this is my day that I'm alive. Yeah. And I choose the latter because the latter honors the men who saved me. Um, you know, that's interesting. And to sit around and be sorry for myself would be, would be an insult to them. I, uh, the way, obviously, you know, you have the final say on this, mm -hmm. but the, the way I read it, it the gift, um, it came to you early and it was, it was kind of a gift of grace the way I read it. And it's just your constitution, your attitude, your, you know, you're just going to get it done. And um, it's almost like there there is no choice for you. It's it's gratitude or, or bust. That's how you how you get through. And one thing we didn't talk about is the racism you experienced as a young child in in Thailand. Uh, I can't do the pronunciation. Farang. Farang. I don't uh -huh. know if that's a Farang. bad word. Yep. Um, but you, Very you, close. you were ostracized. Um, you know, yeah. in, growing up in Thailand, so you you experienced both sides of it. You've had so much life experience. And, you know, that's something that just you, you can't transfer over to people in words. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you're saying we need more diversity in, in government, more representation. But I think um, we can only agree to that if we, if we have a common goal. Can you, can you talk about what you, as Americans, what our common goal is? We seem so divided. Yeah, so I wrote this book um, I didn't mean to write this book. I, I actually was with Abigail, and you know this, with, with, with your two-year-old. So I, I created um, a safe time for Abigail and myself every night. I, I read a book to her yeah. um, when she goes at night, and then I sit with her while she falls asleep. Yeah. Um, and that is mommy Abigail time. Not Nobody else, just the two of us. And we pinky promised that we would always, that was a safe time for us to ask each other questions. Huh. And we would not get mad at each other, no matter what the question was. 
Um, and, and we do that today. today. And, and How I old do that was with, she when you made that promise? About three. Three, okay. Yeah, because I was, that's when her baby sister was born, and then she like wasn't the baby anymore, and she yeah. was getting upset, and I yeah. realized she needed extra attention, so I created this safe space for her. And one night, about 18 months ago, she asked me, Mommy, how come someone else's mommy couldn't have gone and lost their legs? How come someone else's daddy couldn't have gone and lost their legs? You can't teach me to ride my bicycle and, and when you come to school, you can't, you know, um, it was like Halloween and they had like a field day and I couldn't do the three-legged races and stuff, you know. Well, I mean, I could, we just wouldn't win. Um, <laughs> we, we wouldn't have a shot at winning. Um, but, you know, and so she was like, so she was like really upset that her yeah. mommy was really different. She hadn't really noticed that yeah. until it was one of these school events. And so she used her safe time with me to say, how come someone else couldn't have gone? She was just mad yeah. and sad. And I, and I was trying to answer that question. So I started on my notes app on my phone when I was like on in the airport coming back and forth to Chicago. I would write, well, when mommy was really young, her daddy lost his job and she was really hungry, but America gave her food with food stamps. And so America is worth it for me to have served and I would serve again. And then I, I just like kept coming up with these, you know, answers yeah. for her. Yeah. And then one day my chief of staff was, you know, was um, and I were talking and she's like, what are you doing? So I'm just answering this question. I became asked and she's, let me see. And she's like, she looked through and she's like, you know, you got like enough for a book proposal here. This should be a book. So it, this is how the book came about. It was just me trying to answer the question to my daughter of is America worth it? Of, of why was it worth it for me to lose my leg? And why do I say that I would do it again? Because America is worth it. And so all of the chapters were like, you know, um, I was privileged just by being born American. I didn't have to flee in a boat uh, uh, you know, I'm um, from Vietnam and, and I didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, um, beg on the streets, uh, work as a child sex worker and be thrown away because I was an American. I, 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 I got to finish high school because there were public schools because I was an American. And so um, this became inadvertently a love letter to my country. Mm. It was just me trying to answer my daughter's question. And, and so that's where I find the common ground every day is I will tell you up until Donald Trump, I always said that I can work with anyone as long as they love this country as much as I do. And I still feel that way. But I just don't think Donald Trump loved this country as much as I love this country. I think he loved himself more and still does. And, and that is a really sad thing for yeah. me to say because I always go into any negotiation assuming that that other person, you know, Good they may have a different reason of how they get to how they solve the problem uh, or what they see as the problem with America. But I assume that they love America as much as I love America. And this book is, here are all the reasons why I love America. I'm assuming that uh, Mr. Trump is probably not going to read the book, unfortunately, but <laughs> maybe he should. We are speaking and have been speaking with Tammy Duckworth. She is the senator from Illinois. Uh, her new book is Every Day is a Gift. It's out from 12. We do have to let you go. I know you're a very busy person, but there was one name I did want to ask you about because it struck me when reading your book uh, in a frenzy at 530 this morning, to be honest with you. Juanita Wilson was someone that came to you when you were in that hospital room. And she did something um, that it seemed to change the way that you thought about your injury. Can you tell our listeners real briefly who she was? It made an impact on me as a reader, and I think it would make an impact on our listeners as well. Yeah, this is the courage of soldiers or of, of troops, of, of men and women who serve in uniform and, and what you're willing to do for one another. I, I, you know, in the book, I talk about the heroism of, of the men who, you know, quite literally faced enemy fire to save me. But Juanita did face a different kind of 
of danger and different kind of fear and, and was a different kind of a non-commissioned officer. Um, she lost an arm in Iraq uh, and she had, she was only a few weeks ahead of me um, coming through uh, Walter Reed. And at one point at Walter Reed, um, uh, uh, I had never done any drugs and I didn't even, I didn't drink. I can't cause I get the Asian bloom, the Asian flesh and, mm-hmm. and I can't, cons- um, so I never drank. And so my body, what is called narcotics naive. I, I wish I had like lit up once or twice when I went in college because <laughs> it would have made my life a lot better at, at Walter Reed. But basically my body rejected every uh, opioid they tried to put me on. And so they had to titrate me off of the op- opioid. So there's like about a week, a five day period when I was just in nothing but excruciating pain as they were like getting me off the opioids that were not, dealing with was not helping with the pain but was causing me to throw up and hallucinate and i at one point didn't know if i was going to survive that day i mean it was it was so bad that i thought i'm gonna die i'm gonna die i i but i i saw this clock on the wall it's one of those black and white institutional clocks you know if you were in high school you had one in your high school and it, it had a second hand as it went click 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 yeah. along the way and i, I just decided okay i'm going to try to live for 60 seconds i'm going to watch that second hand go around in a circle and then i'm just going to worry about living until that because it, 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 i didn't have the energy to breathe and then Juanita comes in and i don't know who she is um but she stood stands next to me and she looks at me and she says i know you're hurting you'll get through this can i stand for you and she took off her arm her artificial arm so i could see that the stump that was left and i realized she was another amputee just like me another soldier and you have to understand how terrifying that room must have been for her because she just came through it herself, standing there next to, next to the pumps whirling, the machines, you know, all that stuff, the smells. You know, she just went through her own nightmare. Uh, but she came and she stood next to me for I don't know how many days and just helped me count to 60 just so that I would survive 60 seconds at a time and got me through a time that the one time in my life when I thought I was going to die. Um, and I was worried that I was going to die, was, was in that hospital bed when I didn't know I was going to make it. No, no one else could have done it for me. My husband, not my mom. It had to have been someone else who'd been there. And she radiated this, this peace, this serenity, I can't even explain, standing there next to me. And she, she wouldn't leave. This is why they call sergeants the backbone of the, of the Army. She's a Sergeant First Class Juanita Wilson. Wow. Amazing story. Again, we've been speaking with Tammy Duckworth. She is the sender. Her new book is Every Day is a Gift. I know you've got to get to your own children. Thank you so much for spending Thank time you, talking Senator. with us today. Thank we you, really Thank appreciate you. it, Senator. Thank you for all you do. And and uh, if you can get that infrastructure bill passed, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so all right. much. Bye. Take Thank care. you. I honestly don't know why I survived that day. But if you believe in miracles, I would say it's a miracle that I did. Two weeks before the shootdown, I noticed that some of the guys had gotten lax about wearing their aviation life support equipment. The flight helmet, survival vest, flight suit, and Darth Vader-esque maxillofacial shield designed to protect them. It's too hot, they complained. I yelled at them to get squared away and to set an example, I made sure my visor was pulled down and gloves fully on, and I stopped rolling up the sleeves on my flight suit. On November 12, 2004, those small steps saved my life. The gloves and sleeves protected me from severe burns, and as I later learned, the RPG blast split my visor in two, which meant that if I hadn't pulled it down, the blast would have destroyed my face instead. When I heard the machine gun fire pinging off the aircraft, I reached for the GPS switch to mark our location. 
I did this instinctively, even though the GPS hadn't been working the entire day. Because I reached out at the precise moment, the explosion pulverized my arm. Otherwise, it would have pulverized my head. We were all incredibly lucky that Dan was piloting the aircraft, the first time we had flown together in weeks since he'd switched to flying night missions. Dan was an enormously skilled pilot with combat experience going back to Desert Storm. Trust me when I tell you that very few pilots could have pulled off the landing that he did in such a severely damaged aircraft. Matt Backhues, who watched the whole thing from the second helicopter, said later that the fact that Dan was able to land that aircraft blows my mind. For that matter, it's a miracle Dan was actually piloting the helicopter when we were hit. If he hadn't called me a stick pig three minutes earlier, I would still have been in control, and it's likely we all would have died. In the single photo that exists of our downed Blackhawk, you can see a huge entry hole in the floor and an exit hole above. When the remnants of the RPG blasted through the top of the cockpit, how on earth did they not hit the spinning rotor blades? Any strong impact would have rendered the helicopter unflyable, but somehow, by what must have been a matter of millimeters, they missed. And what about the clearing that suddenly appeared exactly where we needed to land the helicopter? What were the chances that less than a kilometer from where the RPG tore into us, in the middle of a huge grove of palm trees, we suddenly see a landing spot? Yet there it was. The fact that Paul Munchs was piloting the second aircraft also likely saved my life. A former medevac pilot, Pat knew he needed to radio ahead to Taji to have a medevac bird waiting. My survival hinged on getting me to Baghdad within the golden hour after my injury, so literally every minute counted. Even then, I barely made it, apparently coding several times on the operating table at the combat surgical hospital there. I shouldn't be here, and yet I am. I know I've been given a second chance, and every day I must try to make good use of it. Dick Durbin called me again in mid-November, shortly after my alive day. I was back in the hospital, recovering after the latest surgery on my arm, nauseous and groggy from getting pumped full of antibiotics yet again. But since that's conversation with Dan, my mind and heart were clear about what I had to do. So, what do you say? Dick asked. I'm in, I said. I had no idea how to do it, but I was running for Congress. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Senator Tammy Duckworth discussing her memoir, Every Day is a Gift, out now from 12 Press. This episode originally aired on April 29, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. <laughs>